Hello, everyone. This is Robin C. Mangle, and I'm joined today by launch specialist Chris Gephardt, and we're bringing you the first edition of the Supercluster News Brief, where at the end of every week, we'll be discussing and informing you on the week's biggest space stories. And uh, for our first edition, we'll be talking about the two biggest players in the commercial space industry right now, SpaceX and Blue Origin, both of whom are making extraordinary progress toward their individual goals of expanding human presence throughout the solar system. Yesterday, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon and the founder of Blue Origin, took the stage in Washington, D.C. to announce a new step for their company. Chris, can you tell us what that new step is? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And for a lot of us, it came out of the blue, pun intended, for Blue Origin. Um, (laughs) So yesterday, Jeff Bezos announced that for the last three years, the company has been working on a lunar lander, which is something that for a bunch of us following NASA's new expedited goal of landing humans on the moon by 2024, was kind of an important and missing piece of the puzzle where... We kept saying, that's great, but what about the lunar lander? Where's the lunar lander? And Jeff Bezos came out yesterday and announced to the world that, oh, yeah, by the way, we've been working on one, and it'll be ready by 2024 if NASA wants it. So it was a, it was pretty exciting because it has some benefits beyond just NASA's program, too, and kind of fits with the new era of government and commercial cooperation for our space initiatives. And let's talk about this date, 2024, which, from my perspective, I feel like yesterday's presentation was definitely aimed at the White House and uh, the White House's call and the vice president's call to return NASA to the moon by 2024. And now this is, you know, sort of a, a call to everyone involved into the space industry, whether it's the private sector or the public sector. But folks like SpaceX and Blue Origin do see an opportunity here to fund their own projects. And this is sort of the precedent already where these companies want to develop new rockets. They need some public funding from NASA and the military to get these projects off the ground. In a lot of ways, yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head there where we like to talk about the new era of commercial space, but it's important to recognize that going all the way back to Project Mercury and and before that with our uncrewed probes and and everything, that this has sort of always been a a public-private partnership in our space initiatives. We're just now for the first time seeing companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX and Rocket Lab and the host of others having their own initiatives outside of what the government wants to do and seeing the potential benefit for the expansion and proliferation of objectives and missions in space that the government either doesn't have an interest in or doesn't wish to fund, but these private companies can. Right. And that's a huge part of the advancement puzzle that we've been talking about and following for the last few years. And it's good to see Blue Origin saying, hey, we've developed this in-house, you know, just like SpaceX has developed the or is developing the Starship in-house. And Blue Origin has been developing new Glenn technology, largely in-house, though now with funding from the U.S. Air Force as well. So we are seeing that bridge between the publicly funded and the privately funded enterprises coming together. And it's a good place to be in here, especially if that goal of landing humans on the moon in five years is going to be met. You brought up New Glenn, which is, I assume, is the rocket that this new blue moon spacecraft lander will launch on. Yeah, New Glenn is the heavy lift rocket that Blue Origin is developing, which should be taking its first flight here in the next couple of years. And by here, you mean Cape Canaveral? 
Yes, yes. Sorry. Here, here as in where I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Blue Origin just recently built a huge new Glenn factory right outside the gates of Kennedy Space Center. It's very noticeable. It's become part of the landscape down at Cape Canaveral and the Space Coast. And from what I understand, Chris, they're building a second factory in the area to process boosters. But yeah, Blue Origin is going to have a huge presence at Kennedy Space Center. And this moon initiative and the New Glenn rocket are all tied into that. Anything special that people should know about this lander in particular? I guess from afar, it does look a little bit like the Eagle lander. It kind of has a similar design, but there's a huge ball, which Elon Musk on Twitter yesterday really <laughs> dragged Jeff Bezos for the blue ball thing. But uh, yeah. what is that ball? What, I, I mean, it's a fuel container, obviously, but what's special about this design? Is there anything special about it? The biggest thing that I noticed that I would say is special about it is just its size, right? You know, right. it does look a lot like the Apollo lunar landers from the late 1960s and early 70s. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's not surprising. Why, Why mess with a technology that's proven? Exactly. But upgrading that design for the modern era, having that eye toward complete reusability of the system and not leaving the lander part on the lunar surface, but bringing that back to a ship for potential reuse, you know, kind of what the lunar gateway is designed for, where that lunar lander would be the car you get in to take you to work. You don't abandon your car in the parking lot once you're in work, at work, right? You right. bring it back home and reuse it. Right. And it's a lot bigger and capable of, of bringing, or at least notionally capable of bringing and I say notionally just because it hasn't gone through its final design iterations and, and everything yet. Right. But it can take a lot more to the surface of the moon and bring back a lot more than the Apollo spacecraft landers were capable of. Interesting. There's been some reporting and there's been papers published that this, uh, what's the crater called, Chris, that they're planning to land on? It's on oh, the south pole of the moon? Yeah, it's on the lunar south pole. And it's one of those locations where there's evidence from some NASA missions and NASA probes and observations that there is water either in the lunar regolith, the lunar soil, or just below the lunar surface uh, in, mm. in terms of water ice that would right. be really beneficial if we could tap into that, which is called in situ resource utilization. And right. that's a huge element of sustaining our lunar and, to an extent, Martian colony initiatives going forward. And that crater that they were advertising, at least, landing on is called the Shackleton Crater? Yes. Now, there was a, a secondary story around this Blue Origin announcement yesterday, and it sort of relates to their media access and their transparency. And I would say, from my perspective that most of the space journalists were not invited. That's correct. And not just not invited, but had no idea that this no was happening. No way of accessing. Yeah, there and was no, no live stream. Of, right. Exactly. And, and that definitely caught a lot of people out. It definitely doesn't leave a great taste in the mouth of a lot of journalists, especially since the fact that by, by my count, and I, I could be wrong because not everyone who was there tweeted about it live. Right. But it seems to me that of the hundreds of spaceflight reporters that are based in Florida, only one got an invite. Right. And that leaves a really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because... That's where this mission will launch. And they exactly. did not see it. They didn't deem it necessary to include 
most of the Cape Canaveral press pool. And, you know, Blue Origin has a reputation for not being transparent. And yes, they are a private company, but they are taking public funding and they are launching NASA missions. That's supposed to come with a degree of transparency. It, it's supposed to. I mean, we've definitely seen that that struggling balance between how do the private companies communicate what they're doing, even if it's publicly funded. We've definitely seen other prominent commercial companies struggle with how to do that. Um, sure. I think, to their credit, a lot of them have have struck a really good balance here in, in recent years and have navigated that successfully. And I think Blue Origin is still doing that. But, you know, the larger issue here wasn't that some members of the media were invited and others weren't. There are always, for events like this, space limitations. Right. That wasn't so much the problem. And, and it should be noted, too, that our displeasure wasn't with our colleagues that got invited in any way, shape, or form. No, of course I'm not. glad that yeah. some people were there. It was just the, you know, it takes almost no effort to have a call-in number to allow media from around the country and around stream. the world. It's, it's 2019. Or, or, or live stream. And, <laughs> right. you know, I know sometimes at conferences, live streams can be difficult based on connectivity that's there. But, you know, a call-in number, just to let us listen to it, is one of the simplest things that, that could be done. And, right. and it so people can do their jobs, at least. Yeah, and it did sort of feed into the narrative of, okay, what don't you want? Why don't you want some of us talking about it? Right. And it was unfortunate that a very positive event like this got in some ways overshadowed by a not-so-great PR decision on, on Blue Origin's part. And, you know, the whole message and the theme of that talk, from what I gather from the reporting and some of the video I watched this morning that they released, they were trying to drive home the space is for everyone message. But at the same time, you prevented the whole world from enjoying this event and being part of it. Right. And, and, you know, I I think going forward, that's something Blue Origin is going to have to internally look at and see exactly what they want to change, because I don't think this was particularly the message they wanted out there yesterday. But just because of the way it went down, it definitely was. And I should say, too, that the displeasure and, and I saw some things on social media that were kind of accusatory to those of us who were calling Blue Origin out on this mm-hmm. and trying to twist it into a, we don't believe in them and we're naysayers to them. And that really couldn't be farther from the truth. No, the, the issues no. we had yesterday had nothing to do with whether or not we believe this is possible. I firmly believe Blue Origin will be able to deliver on these things. I mean, look at what they've been able to do with the new Shepard suborbital rocket right. out in Texas. This has nothing to do with technological demonstration or technological readiness or capability. It it really just was a PR thing that we took issue with yesterday. Yeah, let's hope they learned their lesson. But let's look at the flip side of access and letting people around the world enjoy these missions that do have a degree of public interest and excitement around them. SpaceX will be launching their third Falcon Heavy, their second official mission, I believe the no earlier than date is June 22nd. Correct. And I'm getting that information from (laughs) supercluster.com. And our launch tracker currently says 42 days, 11 hours, and 40 minutes. And what we recently learned through NASA 
is that the agency will be hosting one of their beloved social programs around this mission. Now, the NASA social program has been around for, I want to say, around five years, maybe a little bit longer. Oh, um, over a decade, actually. They started it during the end of the shuttle program. It was called NASA TweetUp then, right? And then moved over yes, to... Yes, 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 that's correct, yeah. Okay. So I came from the NASA social program, and many of Chris and I's colleagues and friends also went through this program. It's a program that's similar to media access, but it's for social media users, not publishers and writers and for and photographers. These are a random assortment of individuals who manage social media accounts that are, you know, some of them are popular, some of them are on their way to being popular. But uh, they come from a wide variety of backgrounds, whether it's food blogger or person who runs social media for Coca-Cola or any sort of person who has a fair following on social media can come to Kennedy Space Center and do content from the center and cover a rocket launch for their audience. And it's a way for NASA to broaden who is paying attention to the agency and their advancements. This is a special social because it'll be the first one for Falcon Heavy launch. And the reason why NASA is doing it is because NASA has payloads on the Falcon Heavy launching next month. And that's really exciting, right, Chris? It is. And I think it caught some of us by surprise, not not because we're surprised that NASA does socials, but right. that they're doing NASA, one for this. Yeah. And, and because it's, it's not technically a NASA mission, NASA has tended to do socials for missions that are specifically theirs, like cargo resupply for the International Space Station, the launch of the TESS satellite that's looking for exoplanets near Earth, things like that. And on this particular Falcon Heavy mission, which is a ride share of multiple different payloads and is technically contracted through the Department of Defense and the U.S. Air Force, I think some of us weren't necessarily thinking that NASA would do a social just because they were one of a few payloads. But right. it's great to see it because this is the world's most powerful rocket right now, the closest to the general public, unless you know someone who works at KSC, right, has been able to get for free Right. is Jetty Park or Playa Beach, south and north of the Cape, respectively. And the only other way to gain access to be really close was to pay a, a, a pretty good price for the visitor center's up-close launch viewing. So right. this is but totally great, worth it. But, but totally, totally worth it. it. Yeah, 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 totally worth it. And this is a great way. I think NASA socials are like 100 to 150 people or something like that. Somewhere around that. You know, sometimes scrubs and delays will thin out the group a little bit. Definitely. It's usually around between 50 and 100 people, I think, by the end. And I love these because they are a way for for people, like you were saying, like food bloggers Mm -hmm. or people who aren't connected to the spaceflight industry but are fans of it to experience a launch and get to see this stuff up close. And I mean, not only does that help people feel like space is for everyone, right? It brings new voices because I'll I'll be the first to admit, I've sat in some briefings where NASA social invitees have been in there and they ask terrific questions that I would never think to ask. And it's great to get all those different viewpoints and experiences out there, uh, especially for pretty exciting missions like like the third Falcon Heavy flight coming up this summer. On the page for this podcast, we will drop a link uh, to NASA Social and to the application. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the application will still be open. NASA Social started off as a very small program 
but now it is very exclusive. Uh, a lot of people apply. It's tough to get in, but if I were you and uh, I'm a space fan, I would apply for everyone until I got in. Um, <laughs> personally, I applied for a few and I got in. I also got rejected, but NASA Social led me into my space reporting career. And it's that's how important of a program. That's how cool it is. That's what kind of access you get. My first NASA Social CRS-5, the first time SpaceX tried to land on anything. NASA brought us in to the vehicle assembly building. It's one of the largest single-story buildings in the world. It is uh, inspiring. It, it is the largest. And it's just when you walk in there, the gravitas of space flight just it, it hits you right away. And uh, it changes a lot of people. I know a lot of people from NASA Social just didn't leave Kennedy Space Center after their social, That was, and I was one of them. So uh, it's a great program. I would definitely bookmark the NASA Social website and follow them on social media to find out when future socials are being held. Because they don't, because they don't just do them for launches, and I think this is one of the great parts of the program. Right. They, they do tours of the Johnson Space Center and the Jet Propulsion right. Laboratory, and and all of the NASA centers and facilities around the country. If you're thinking, oh, well, I don't necessarily have the resources to travel to Florida or California for a launch, look, there's look around. There's definitely local, yeah. There's definitely yeah. local accessible things that NASA will do to get the public involved. And it's it's a great effort. Like I said, it, it changes a lot of people's lives and career trajectories when they do through this program. So we'll include a link for it on our website underneath this podcast on the landing page. We also recently published a great Falcon Heavy recap video of the last mission. If you want to get yourself pumped for that, there's a mixture of SpaceX footage, our footage, and sort of human level footage of the sonic boom. If I would going to sell anyone on any point of coming to a Falcon Heavy launch, it would be to witness the two boosters with your own eyes coming down and feeling that sonic boom. It is There's nothing in the world that can match that experience. And I think, Chris, would you agree with me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would agree. I've, I've seen it now twice with, yeah. with my own eyes, and I see pictures of the dual booster landings, and my brain still immediately goes, oh, come on, that's fake. Yeah. Yeah, Chris and I have seen this up close. We've seen, we've been there for every Falcon Heavy milestone, even the static fires. And I think Chris and I are still in disbelief of what's happening, especially when those boosters are coming down. But Chris, let's tie this up with what's coming up on the launch tracker. I have it pulled up right now. It looks like we have a mission coming up next week. Yeah, five days from now, I should say five days from when we're recording this, SpaceX is planning the inaugural launch of the first batch of dozens and dozens of their Starlink satellites. And These are internally the, built satellites by SpaceX. Yes, and these are space-based internet satellites. So the goal of this constellation, there will eventually be thousands of these things in orbit, thousands upon thousands of them in orbit. And there are three orbits that they're going to be deployed into. And SpaceX is going to be filling out the first orbital shell, as it's being called, mm -hmm. which is uh, 550 kilometers in altitude, so above the altitude of the International Space Station. Okay. And they are going to be building out that shell because once that shell is complete or near complete, they can start offering people, internet services, just like what you get from your local broadband provider at home right now, you'll have another option of having SpaceX be your, your internet, internet provider. Service. 
that's yeah. weird, but and I'm into it's it. it's it's a new changing paradigm. From what I understand of it, like when you order it, it comes with a little receiver system that you would mount to your house. That's can be solar powered or tie into your home's electrical grid. And you'll have dozens of satellites within range of your house at a given time. So the signal should be pretty good. And SpaceX could be your internet provider. But more importantly, how this ties into the larger goal, right? Because that's definitely a space is for everyone because we can literally get our internet from space now. Right. But it ties into the larger goal for SpaceX because this is primarily how they are going to fund the Mars colonization efforts that the company has. The most um, expensive thing ever attempted by humans. I believe probably. so. Yeah. I mean, and, it, uh, uh, by, by the time it's done, it probably will be. Um, in the I, tens of billions. Probably. Yeah, I believe the International Space Station is still, to this day, the most expensive um, outfit that we've done. Now imagine having to build one that has to go to Mars. <laughs> so that's right. what we're looking at. Right. Um, and, and a lot of for- forecasts have been made by investment firms and large Wall Street banks. And they're looking at space-based broadband as a billion-dollar market where there is a ton of money to be made. People have been throwing out ridiculous numbers like within a decade, that market could be worth in the 40, 50 billion range. But everyone's trying to get in on it. SpaceX is, you know, obviously they're launching next week, which is pretty soon, but Boeing, OneWeb, there are other companies trying to build this sort of infrastructure, space-based internet. And, you know, the the long-term goals of at least what SpaceX's talking points are is to provide internet around the world where people just don't have it. And I think people would be shocked to learn that I think about half the world doesn't have readily accessible high-speed internet. Probably more. We can get into our little bubbles. It's easy because you can fly from New York, Rob, down here. And, you know, I can go anywhere in the country. And it's shocking to us when we don't have signal. Right. Right. It, like, Um, destroys our day. It's like, oh, (laughs) Sometimes. But, you know, there are large parts of the world that are very, very remote. And just laying the infrastructure and the cabling to get internet to these places really isn't feasible. But you can get a receiver to them. Right. right. And beam the internet to them from from these constellations, you know, of which you, you, you know, you rightfully said Starlink is just one of the proposed internet constellations that are that are going to be launched here in the next decade. It really is like just, it, you know, even getting away from like it gives all of us who already have internet an additional option. It gives people who have never had it access to it. And that's hugely important in in a world where information really is, is currency. life and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So Starlink launches on Wednesday, May 15th, um, 10.30 p.m. Eastern. What's the launch window on that, Chris? Do you know? Uh, it is roughly 90 minutes. So 10.30 to midnight local time here, uh, Eastern time on the 15th of May. Great. Well, you can track that launch at supercluster.com slash launches. And the live feed will pop up there if you are tracking the launch live. And you can learn a little bit about the mission and about the rocket it's launching on. Follow us on social media at SuperclusterHQ on Twitter and Instagram. And we'll have live coverage of the mission. We'll post some photos and uh, have some updates for you on the launch tracker page. So Chris and I will be back next week. We'll let you know how the mission went. And we'll talk about what's coming up soon. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in.